This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. All right, welcome back to yet another episode of Breaking Pod. We are talking about season three, episode nine, Kafka-esque. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, the brilliant Josh Goldman. Josh, how are you today? I'm doing well. Zach, should we let our listeners in on a little bit of how the sausage is made? Because that actually <laughs> lines up pretty nicely with the beginning of this episode, where, yes. where we learn how Gus Fring's uh, quote-unquote sausage is made when we learn about his empire, uh, Los Poyos Hermanos. We recorded the beginning of this podcast already. We did. And I, I would say the last five to ten minutes of uh, this experience has been rather Kafka-esque, wouldn't you? I would say so. Well, we should talk about what that means because we uh, we had a technical error. We had to re-record the beginning of this episode. Just helps us hone in on our definition of Kafka-esque, which, you know, before I think both of us had a little idea of, of what it meant, but we both ended up looking it up and uh, you can give us and our listeners the official definition of Kafka-esque, which becomes an important part of this episode. Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is, as we already established on the recording that we lost, we both had a pretty good idea of what Kafka-esque meant, having read yeah. uh, Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis in high school, uh, thinking it is something, you know, bizarre, oppressive, surreal, perhaps. Uh, but as you mentioned, I looked up Kafka-esque just to make sure I had the right idea, and it was helpful to to get the full uh, official definition from Merriam-Webster. So let me just let me just read this here. Kafkaesque of relating to or suggestive of Franz Kafka or his writings. Now that's not very helpful unless you know anything about Franz Kafka or his writings. So I'll read that in just a moment. But then Merriam-Webster says, especially having a nightmarishly complex, bizarre, or illogical quality. And then uh, there's a little paragraph here that's helpful. Kafkaesque literature. Franz Kafka, 1883 to 1924 was a Czech-born German-language writer whose surreal fiction vividly expressed the anxiety, alienation, and powerlessness of the individual in the 20th century. Kafka's work is characterized by nightmarish settings in which characters are crushed by nonsensical blind authority. Thus, the word Kafka-esque is often applied to bizarre and impersonal administrative situations where the individual feels powerless to understand or control what is happening. Have you ever been in a Kafka-esque situation, Josh? You know, I can't say that I have, and I'm glad that I have not. Not that I can think of. The only thing I can think is, have I ever been to a haunted house and feel like I'm trapped somewhere? But no, I don't even think I, I'm not a big fan of haunted houses, so I don't even think I've done that. How about you? Uh, I have done a haunted house, um, I, but I, I've never been in one that I would describe as Kafkaesque. So uh, yeah. no, I don't think I've been in a Kafkaesque situation. <laughs> I think that's good for both of us. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm glad about that. It's very good. Uh, well, Unfortunately for one, Jesse Pinkman. <laughs> exactly. That's where I was going with that as well. You uh, you anticipated my brilliant segue and uh, and trumped it. So yeah, Jesse Pinkman has found himself in a Kafka esque situation, and let's just talk about that now because there's this funny moment that I selected as one of my best moments uh, in this episode, in which Jesse Pinkman uses the word Kafka esque after hearing his uh, recovery circle leader use the word. And so let me back up in that first instance when Jesse's describing his job. And it's kind of funny, right? He's like, my boss is a total dick. The hours suck. I work at a laundromat. He's <laughs> listing all these things that he hates about his job. Obviously, all very true. Yeah, all true. Exactly. Obviously, no one knows that what he's doing is making meth. But his, uh, his leader says, sounds Kafka-esque. And Jesse pauses, having obviously no idea what Kafka-esque means. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's totally Kafka-esque. 
<laughs> and uh, and so that's that. That's where the title of the episode comes in. Now, what I think is interesting, Josh, is that his recovery leader is making this observation, knowing nothing really about what Jesse's up to. He knows about Jesse's background, right? He knows that at least something about Jesse's history of drug use. It's not totally clear if he uh, if he knows about Jane, but we can, I think, safely surmise that he does based on the previous conversation when uh, when Jesse was in the intensive recovery rehab. Um, but so he says it's Kafka-esque, but what, you know, even though Kafka-esque doesn't exactly describe Jesse's, you know, voluntary choice of doing this to make $1.5 million for three months of work, what it does describe is Jesse's life uh, and how messed up it's been since Walt got him into the, the you know, heavy, the hardcore heavy-duty drug trade in the first place. So I think that's interesting. Uh, and it's just interesting that it's Kafka-esque and the recovery leader is accurately describing Jesse's life, despite the fact that he doesn't even really know he's accurately describing it. Nor, of course, does Jesse, because Jesse doesn't know what Kafkaesque means. And for proof of this, look no further than just a little bit later in the episode when Jesse is lamenting to his, uh, his partners in crime, Badger and Skinny Pete, that uh, he now is subjected to the Kafkaesque reality of tax paying. Just saying, double advocate. I gotta pay taxes now? What the hell's up with that? That's messed up, you know, that's Kafkaesque. Church. So, I, one of the, my favorite church. parts about that scene, yeah, exactly, church, and that's right. But Skinny Pete and Badger look at each other when he says Kafkaesque, and they're just like, "What is? What is he talking about? I have no idea what Kafkaesque means." Yeah. So nobody knows what Kafkaesque means except for the recovery leader, who then doesn't know how much it actually, really, truly does apply to Jesse's life in general. But anyway, you know who else? You know who else would know what Kafkaesque meant? Gail. Gail Bedecker. Gail would absolutely know what Kafkaesque meant, and I would even suggest that. Gail's, uh, you know, firing of Walt for no good reason is a little bit Kafkaesque, you know, totally yeah, beyond agree. his control. He's already finding himself in this sort of a nightmarish world of uh, drugs and uh, narcotics production, not narcotics. Exactly. I guess meth isn't a narcotic. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't speak out of turn. I don't really know my drugs, Josh, but I don't <laughs> think it's a narcotic. I don't know. Um, the only drug I know is Advil. <laughs> yeah, right. And Tylenol. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to the beginning uh, of this synopsis here. I think we need to do our grade on our Wikipedia summary, Josh. So let me Absolutely. read this description of Kafkaesque and then we'll give it a letter grade. All right. Two minute summary. Walt and Jesse are now in full production in the new lab and are easily producing the minimum 200 pounds per week of meth as agreed. While Jesse sneaks some of the excess meth to sell on his own with help from Badger and Skinny Pete. Walt's brother-in-law, Hank, is still recovering in the hospital. And Marie is at a loss about what to do when she learns that their health plan will not provide the quantity and quality of physical therapy Hank requires to fully recover the use of his legs. Skyler proposes that she and Walt pay the bills, claiming that they can afford it because Walt has become a successful gambler. Great discussion, by the way. Great conversation. <clears throat> Gomez shows Hank a map that indicates blue meth has been sold in seven states and tells Hank he was right about Heisenberg still being active. Walt realizes that his life was in danger and it was only Gus's intervention that saved him. All right, Josh, I'll ask you in just a second what you think of this, but I will just point out right off the bat, this suffers from the same, from your kind of pet peeve of Wikipedia summaries, namely that the chronology is totally out of order. And it's, yes. it's difficult to make sense of that because we don't understand the order of things that are happening. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely a problem. I think that it's, it's less concerning in this case for me because the last one 
uh, could have led to a misinterpretation of a character and their character development. This one is just annoyingly out of place and out of order. So I will give this one uh, a solid C+. It's it's not terribly written. Like all the sentences uh, strung together make sense to me, uh, but it is it's a little lacking. Yeah, I agree. I think C plus is fair. Uh, I will take issue with the characterization that they are easily producing the minimum 200 pounds yeah. per week of meth. I, there's nothing about this process that seems easy to me. <laughs> From cradle yeah. to grave, the production uh, and distribution of methamphetamine seems like a very difficult thing. Uh, That's totally and it, fair. And it seems like Walt and Jesse work pretty hard in the lab. You know, it's not good work. It's not redemptive work, but it's, it seems like it's pretty tough to do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, C+. All right, any broader thoughts and themes, Josh, before we just dive right into our, uh, our nominations here? No, I think we should dive in because some of the scenes and, and best writing moments we're going to talk about, I think are really, uh, you know, they really illustrate uh, certain things that I think play into the bigger role of the season. Yeah, I think so too. And our best scenes, we each selected different scenes for this, divergent ones, but I think we both have really good reasons for doing this. So let's go ahead and start with yours, Josh. You liked this uh, elaborate lie from Skylar. And we've talked before about how good Breaking Bad is at these monologues. And this is one of the first, I mean, it might be the second monologue. I think we heard, we heard a really good monologue from Skylar when she uh, first told Walt that she found out he was lying. Um, yeah. This is the second great monologue that I can remember from Skylar. Uh, and she just she delivers it very well. And there's lots to talk about, but uh, but I'll pass this to you for commentary. Yeah, I think we should hear. Let's hear the beginning of this first, because I think it's it's important to hear before we talk through it. Please, it's tens of thousands of dollars. We have the money, more than enough. Walt earned it. Skyler, I think Marie should know the truth. Skyler, I I really don't think this is a good idea. I I think that you're into gambling. Walt and I, uh, we've had our problems lately. You know that. And, uh, what it all came down to really was money. Pure and simple. So I think what is is best about this scene and the reason that I like it so much, this this monologue of her elaborate story of Walt gambling goes on for another couple minutes. But I think that this first point is is the most important. First, I love that Skylar gains the upper hand on Walt. He's he's really like frightened that she's going to say that he cooks meth. And I always love when characters get the tables turned on them. And ultimately, she doesn't spill the beans about the meth, but she comes up with a story about gambling. But the line that I think is most important here, for a couple of reasons, is when she says, what it all came down to was money, pure and simple. The reason for that is because, one, it's totally true and in line with Walt cooking meth. So the, while the stories diverge in how he earned the money... That is true. He wanted to earn money. That's what it came down to. They did not have enough money for his recovery. He was worried he was going to die, that he wasn't going to have anything to leave behind. So that is true. And I love that they are able to, she was able to come up with a story and the writers were able to write this in a way that they, she could have some truth in this line. The other thing that I like about it too is that when we talked about the, the IFT line, uh, from Skylar, I said that it was, it was like a weapon that she used against him. I think this is, in a similar way, a weapon as well, because Walt's whole thing this whole time is that he's doing it for his family. He's, he's, he's earning money, but it's for his family. What Skylar's saying here, and what I think she really believes, is that Walt is driven solely by the money. 
It's not really for his family. He wants to feel powerful and that he has money. And at the end of all of this, you know, when Marie accepts that this is true and she leaves and they say, please don't tell Hank, don't tell anybody. Um, Walt says, how did you come up with that? Almost as if you came up with it on the fly. And she says to him, I learned from the best. And I think that that is true in the sense that she learned how to lie from him, but also that she learned how to you know, develop something over time, which I think that she's been thinking about this for a while. You know, I don't, I don't think that she came up with this in- elaborate plot entirely right there. I think that she's been thinking this for a while and coming up with this. And Walt has been the master of deception over time. And so I think that that falls in line there. Great analysis. I have nothing to quibble with. I just have some things to add maybe to this, uh, to kind of thinking through what's going on here. Uh, the first thing is we have now seen kind of a softening of Skylar in several instances towards Walt. Now, I think she's mad at him. I don't think they're, uh, they're you know, now a happily married couple again by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, just last episode, we were talking about that long monologue Walt had about the hospital stay, and, and Skylar was kind of choking up during that. And I don't think we're going to talk about it elsewhere in, uh, in tonight's episode, but um, when Ted comes by the house, right, Skylar's not really happy to see him. So she's, she seems to be at least cooling on the idea of divorce, um, and there's something going on there. And so maybe to your point about sort of this developing for a long time in her mind, maybe this is some way that she has thought they could plausibly go back to some degree of normalcy if there's a plausible explanation for what Walt has done with his time and where he's gotten his money. Um, that's, that's thought number one. The second thing is when you said that this is something that she has over him, kind of a weapon, I agree with you. I, I think it's also a weapon, though, for the reason that it kind of it diminishes what Walt has done, right? And so in that way, it sort of knocks him back down to size because it's one thing to learn how to count cards or like exploit a gambling loophole that allows you to make money on something and then leverage that to win money. It's another thing entirely to like become a self-made drug kingpin, right? Uh, one of those is, well, one of them is certainly morally more morally suspect than the other. Uh, although they're both pretty morally suspect, but um, the drug kingpin route is much more like technically impressive from a power standpoint. Uh, and so Skylar is now publicizing, even though it's only to Marie, she's publicizing publicizing this story that deliberately, I think, undersells what Walt has actually done and kind of um, offends him that way. And sort of she's able to wield that as a weapon. So that's really interesting. Um, and, uh, there's, it's also a funny scene, uh, because as Skylar's talking, Walt is obviously really nervous, like you mentioned, and he's like leaning forward on his chair, like what happens next in the story? It's almost like mm-hmm, story time mm-hmm. for a couple of children, you know? Yeah. And it's a, it's a really funny, uh, a really funny scene in a sort of like surprising way, I guess. And Marie's leaning forward too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a I couple totally of children. Think I totally think you're right about the the fact that it's it's used as a weapon in that way as well. And, and in fact, the way that I would the, the the analogy that I would use is the IFT line was a sharp dagger. This is like a dull knife because this is going to have repercussions beyond just this moment. I think the IFT thing was in the moment very hurtful. This is one of those things where she's now basically undermining his abilities to a family member. And also sort of outing him in an embarrassing way. Like it's it's kind of embarrassing if you have a gambling problem and you've learned how to cheat. Like that's not it's not as if he, you know, she said he won the lottery or, you know, he invented something and she's she's using something that's negative. 
So I think that that makes it more of a, a dull weapon as well. I will say, you mentioned the Ted Beneke scene. That was actually my nominee for worst scene. It was I terrible. I can't stand Ted Beneke. <laughs> so bad. He's so bad. And I can't believe he's going to he's gonna persist in this show for a little while. Yeah. I, I, I seem to remember, I can't remember exactly how he finally leaves, but I think I remember a little bit and he gets his comeuppance. There's yeah, there's an injury coming. We'll say that. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, yeah. such a such a bad character. Um, yeah. I mean, he's and just not a like, great actor either. No, no, not at all. I mean, he's just like the, I, I understand the, um, uh, what's the, what's the term we've talked about it before the term for an actor that, uh, is just there for, you know, like to, to, just to be the foil of another one. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's his role. I get that. You know, but just having someone who can act in those roles is better. Uh, yeah. Cause absolutely. I mean, let's be real. That's also, that's, that's Saul Goodman's role in many scenes. Right. But he's an incredible actor. So he just yeah. crushes it every time. Um, exactly. All right, so uh, let's stay on the Scatter Walt thing real quick. We're going to co- go kind of out of order, but let's jump to best moment, Josh, because your nominee for best moment was a Scatter Walt scene as well, and I think it will make a little more sense uh, kind of in keeping with the theme we just were talking about. Yeah, this is a really small moment, but, you know, Walt leaves the hospital and, you know, Marie follows him and basically gets in his car, and, and this is what she asks him. It's a really short scene, but I think it's really important too. I think you said Marie, but you meant Skyler. Oh, right? I'm sorry. Skyler leaves the hospital, gets in the car with Walt. Yes. Okay. Are we safe? Yes. Are you safe? So I think what's really important about this scene is that I think to your point, Zach, later when she when she tells the gambling story, you know, she might have this idea that they can be back together. And and I think what's important to know is that she doesn't just ask in this little moment if they are safe. She asks if Walt is safe, which means that she does have some genuine feelings for him. I, I think that the important thing to realize here and that I think the thing that's easy to forget in in dramatic moments like this is that they have a history of you know 18 years or however much of marriage or 20 years and that doesn't all just go away now certainly there can be hurt and there can be pain and there can be suffering but all of that care and love that we assume they had at some point that we never get to see in the show that's still there underneath and i think that it's important for us as an audience to see those moments or we're not going to buy the fact that Skylar would want to take him back or that she would be interested at all. Even if she wants to wound him later or hurt him in some way, there is still that care and, and love deep under the surface. And I like that we see that here. Yeah. I could not agree more. That was the point I was going to draw out. I mean, just this, this theme of Skylar kind of softening toward wall. I think we see a great example of it right there. All right, let's pivot characters, Josh. I want to talk about Jesse. We've got a couple of scene nominations here. Uh, My best scene involves Jesse, and then we both have the same nomination for best writing. Uh, And I think it's probably the best singular, uh, you know, sequence in this whole episode. But we'll get to that. First, I just want to talk about what I uh, characterize as the best scene for my nomination as opposed to the best writing. And this, I think, just reflects more of the character development of Jesse. We've seen him become a lot, uh, seen his character become a lot more hardened. Uh, he's been in recovery. He did. I think, I think he made a genuine attempt, uh, at participating when he was in rehab after Jane's death, but now he's clearly uh, not taking his recovery stuff seriously. 
Now, I will mention we're about to play a second clip of him in recovery, but the scene that we're going to talk about happens before the scene that I'm about to play. So chronologically, I want to be clear on that because it, it more accurately reflects the character development that way. So this is at the end of this episode when Jesse's in recovery. He recruits uh, Badger and Skinny Pete to help him sell meth to the recovering addicts. It's just like the lowest of the low. This is terrible. This new version of it hit the streets and uh, wow. Not that blue stuff. Oh, sorry. I didn't raise my hand. No, go ahead. This is what we do. Yeah, exactly. The blue stuff. You had it too? Yeah, bro. I wish I never even heard of it. It was like lighting my whole head on fire. Yeah. This stuff will burn you down. Only reason I have a hope in hell is because it's long gone. That's the shame of it. Nah. Nah, man. Don't tell me that. Here it's back in town. So a couple things here. Uh, I mean, you can't hear it. You can't notice in the audio because it's a visual thing. But Jesse looks a little devious in this scene. He's like, I can't exactly describe how he looks, except you know, cunning and calculating and a little bit evil. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, but second, I mean, I think the uh, the extras actually do a pretty good job. Maybe they overplayed a little bit, um, but they do a pretty good job, like acting intrigued right by this like amazing blue meth that'll knock your socks off or whatever light your head on fire whatever it was that (laughs) skinny pete said uh and then when he says it's back in town but i just i'm just like the more i think about this the more heinous this becomes like these people have had their lives ruined by meth probably the lives of the many of the people they love and jesse gets this bright idea to try to peddle meth to them i mean it's it's insane yeah, I think it's it's also in an important scene because it it illustrates that Jesse thinks that he's being sly and devious, but it really is like the lowest place they could try to do this. Like you can imagine Walt thinking in the same way, I'm going to try to sell my extra meth. He wouldn't try to sell here. Like that's not where he would start. And it's it's interesting from a character perspective because Jesse is starting at the lowest possible place he can think of and in probably one of the most vulnerable populations and and probably in a place where he feels it's safest because they're not on the street selling it they're with people who they know are users and they are easy they have easy access to them yeah great point and it's also worth pointing out i think that jesse has 1.5 million dollars coming to him for three months of work and yet he wants to make some money on the side i mean there's no plausible reason for him to need this money it's uh, it's just a need, I think, to to do something. It's a need to, you know, feel like he's in control of something, to run his own show, et cetera, because he feels totally powerless in this Kafka-esque environment of the uh, Gus Fring laundromat underground lab. Um, but let's let's back up chronologically to earlier in this episode. Now we're in the recovery group again, but again, previous to the scene that we just listened to. This is when uh, Jesse is telling the story about making this box. I've broken this up into a couple of sequences. So let me just play the first one here, and we'll talk. My, uh, my project for his class was to make this um, wooden box, you know, like a small, um, just like a, like a box, you know, to put stuff in. So I, w- I wanted to get the thing done as fast as possible. Um, I figured I could cut classes for the rest of the semester and he couldn't flunk me as long as I, you know, made the thing. So, uh, just like a box, you know, just like a box to put stuff in. (laughs) 
Uh, so he's he's telling the story of the um the like shop instructor, right? Uh, so before I play the kind of um penultimate part of this sequence, any thoughts on that, Josh? Yeah, I think that you know I mentioned a couple episodes ago when he had that he had that meltdown against Walt, where he basically said, "It's not the money that I'm turning down; it's you." I think that this one is is really important because it's almost you can almost put these two scenes side to side by side because he's talking about a teacher who actually had a positive impact on him. You might remember from you know I think maybe even season one when we're at Jesse's parents' house and he finds all his chemistry tests where he just has an F and the only feedback from Walt, Mr. White, as his chemistry teacher says, apply yourself. Like this is unacceptable. And it's interesting because here, Jesse responds to a different kind of critique. And I think that's the next part of what we're going to hear in this conversation. Yeah, great point. Let me just play the rest of this and then we'll talk some more. So when I uh, showed it to Mr. Pike for my grade, uh, he looked at it and said, is that the best you can do? At first I thought to myself, hell yeah, bitch. Now give me a D and shut up so I can go blaze one with my boys. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it was the way he said it, but it was like he wasn't exactly saying it sucked. He was just asking me honestly, is, is that all you got? So I don't want to take any credit away from the actors and actresses in this show, the cast writ large, but the casting directors, just world class. I mean, I cannot think of a person better suited than Aaron Paul to play this exact role. I mean, the whole way he yeah. delivers this monologue, it's just... It's so, so good. Uh, and, and I love... You know what I have to say about that? What's that? Hell yeah, hell yeah bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so perfect. I, just, I love this scene so much. Uh, and I think yeah. Aaron Paul is just remarkable. I love your point about uh, Mr. Pike versus Mr. White, right? Walter White versus the, the former Marine shop teacher, Mr. Pike, who's hard of hearing, you know? Hard um, of hearing, yep. One gives the imperative, apply yourself, you can do better. And one gives the is this the best you can do? Not in a judging way, not in a, uh, whatever it was that Jesse said, but just like an honest, an honest way. Like, is this actually your best effort? And it's really, it's a good, it's a great point from you that that is what leads Jesse to actually apply himself. Now, of course, the super sad thing about this story, like, so he goes back and, you know, he, he actually does apply himself and he makes these beautiful, beautiful boxes and he makes box after box after box. And he makes one that's like, inlaid walnut and he sands it for hours till it's super smooth and he's just super proud of this thing and then the recovery leader says what'd you do with it and he says i gave it to my mom and then he corrects himself and says i didn't give it to my mom i sold it for an ounce of weed super sad so i mean like i know a couple of things here one like you see the grip that drugs can have on people's lives and the drugs have had on jesse's life specifically and it's it's uh devastating to see what an impact it's had on him and what could have been i mean he could have been uh he could have been a furniture maker you know he could have been a cabinet maker he could have been an uh, artisan box maker but instead he is a you know trying you know a recovering addict and a meth manufacturer because of the grip that drug, drugs have had on him the second thing is i mean just look at the influence that this mr pike had in his life uh and not to get too uh, sappy about things but you never know what influence you're going to have 
on the lives of people whose paths you cross. And this is a high school home ec teacher, or I guess, you know, shop teacher, uh, who almost was singularly responsible for this kid being on the straight and narrow and finding something he was passionate about. And of course, it's not Mr. Pike's fault. It didn't quite work out. There are other factors in Jesse's life, but uh, it's amazing that at this point in his life, he looks back to Mr. Pike as, you know, one of the most influential people in his life and how it, you know, he almost led to something that was. I think the saddest thing about the scene is that we're presented with a what could have been for Jesse. And not just that he could have been a world-class carpenter or even a passable carpenter at that. It's mostly that that had someone like Mr. White influenced him in a more positive way or taken, you know, uh, taken a second to consider that maybe the imperative apply yourself doesn't work for every student and instead sat down with him and said, what do you need to, you know, further yourself here? We could have seen a whole different trajectory in Jesse's life. And I think that it's sad for us as an audience who cares about this, this character to know that really he's on this path of destruction and he could have been something different. Yeah, completely agree. On that, uh, that Kafka-esque note, let's go on to nits to pick and then we'll wrap things up. So Josh, what are your nits to pick, if any, for this episode? I actually didn't come up with any nits to pick in this episode. So a pretty clean episode wow. from my perspective. Okay. Well, I came up with one and that has to do with the second to last scene we played where Jesse has recruited uh, Skinny Pete and Badger to come pedal meth to the meth heads. Uh, that's kind of mean to me. They're, they're, they're <laughs> in recovery. I don't mean to call them meth heads, but you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, skinny Pete and Badger do a fantastic job. So like these guys are completely inarticulate every other time. And now we're supposed to believe that they're in this circle and they are able to deliver their lines with perfection and gusto in a way that is completely compelling to the people in there. I am, uh, I'm not buying it. So that's my one to pick for this, this episode. Yeah, the only other thing I, I think we should mention about this episode, we, we don't need to talk about it now, but it will become important later. Walt does have an important conversation with Gus about basically they clear the air where Walt confronts him and says, look, you 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 knew about the attack on Hank, you warned him. And they, they talk about Walt's future. And I think that Gus's sort of level headedness here is important because it it sets Walt's mind at ease. But I think that there's a little, you know, knowing what we know about Gus, he's always level-headed. It, it seems to me like there could be something more there. Like it can't just be that easy that that Walt is going to extend his contract to cook meth indefinitely. So I think that that's that's an important thing that we can table for now, but will become important in a, in a few episodes. Yeah, I mean, let's let's before we table it, let me just give the 30-second recap for listeners who might have forgotten. So Walt goes to Gus says basically I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a dramatic conversation and there's a little bit more to this, but basically the gist is, I know you warned Hank. You warned Hank because you wanted the cartel to get in trouble. You wanted the cartel to get in trouble because that would cut off the supply lines for, so the cartel could not bring their meth into the US and you would have the entire American Southwest to yourself for your meth, make a lot more money, a lot more profitability, et cetera. Uh, and so Walt basically says, you know, I'm concerned about my family. I still want them to have the money they need. What's next for me after three months? Because he signed on to do the three months for three million. So Gus basically says, "Well, let's just extend it, like you were saying, Josh, right? You know, essentially indefinitely at this point, twelve months for twelve million." And then he says, "Let's call it fifteen. You know, I'll give you even more money." 
Uh, and so Walt agrees to that. Like you said, puts his mind at ease, uh, et cetera. Now, I mean, Walt has to be smart enough, as is Gus, to know that like no, contra- no contractual arrangement lasts forever. Uh, the market will dry up. The meth will run out, uh, whatever, right? There'll be a better product that people want, things like that. Things will affect this. The interesting thing is, um, and, and I, don't, I honestly don't remember what happens in the future here, uh, but Gus gives Walt a raise, 15 million for 12 months. And I am curious to see if Jesse sees his equal half of that raise. Yeah, I can't remember either. Yeah. But this did remind me of one nit to pick, so I'm glad that we talked about it. When Walt leaves the meeting, he is driving oh, on this yeah. like empty highway, and he's speeding at like 100 miles an hour in the Pontiac Aztec, which, first of all, that car no. would not really support no. that. But then he almost smashes into an oncoming 18-wheeler and instead swerves out of the way at the last second. Now, I don't know about you, I once drove an SUV and I turned the car too quickly one time and I almost flipped the car. It was really scary. Walt is in an SUV and the car doesn't even look remotely like it's gonna flip. Despite him traveling at 100 miles an hour and swerving quickly out of the way, he just somehow ends up pulled off, sliding into a dirt patch. Definitely a nit to pick there. No, it's that Pontiac Aztec wide wheelbase, low weight (laughs) distribution. Yeah, is there, exactly. by the way, is there is there an uglier SUV ever made than oh, the Pontiac Aztec? Actually, there's one. It is the the Cube. Oh, you know that's what true. I'm talking about? Yeah, the, that the is the a Nissan horribly, Cube. Oh. Yeah, horrible, Ugh. horrible looking car with the weird window that sort of uh, goes yeah. around the entire the back. C, the C-shaped window or whatever yeah, it's called. Horrible. Yeah, horrible. L-shaped Just window. Just terrible. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, I agree with that. Yeah, the Cube's pretty pretty horrendous. Um, but, but Aztec's not far behind. Yeah, the other thing about that scene, that is another nit that I, I have in mind as well. So not just the fact that it doesn't look like it's going to roll over, but the camera shows the car super close to the truck. Like, yeah, oh yeah. He's going to hit it. And then like half a second later, he's swerving out of the way and just misses. But there's no way the physics check out on that. He's, uh, he's absolute toast given what the camera shows us. Uh, exactly. But anyway, we digress. Okay, so we've done our nits now, Josh. It is time for the MVP tally. Who is your MVP for this episode? Yeah, this one's tough. Uh, I, I guess it, for me, it's probably between Walt and Jesse. And based on the the box monologue, I'm going to give it to Jesse here. But it's close. I think they both have a lot to do. And they both have a lot to do that drives the plot forward. And so I, I'll give it to Jesse for this one. I agree with you. I will also give it to Jesse. Uh, the box monologue, very good. Uh, and he is after all, the guy with the Kafkaesque life. So he <laughs> exactly. is responsible for the episode title itself. Um, you know, thought about Walt Jr., but there's really no plausible way to award <laughs> to him. So we'll pass on Was that. Was he even in this episode? I, can't <laughs> I don't, think, I don't so. think so. I don't think so either. <laughs> maybe, that's, uh, maybe that's the only chance he will get to get an MVP when he's not in it, but he's referenced. Yeah, exactly. It just like he'll, he'll really drive the plot along when he's not exactly. in it. Exactly. All right. Well, that actually puts Jesse in the lead. So we now have Jesse with 14 total MVP votes to Walt's 13. Uh, and then uh, Gus, Marie, and Gail leading up the, the uh, or, or heading up the, uh, the end there, uh, just ahead of Walter Jr. at zero forever. <laughs> Walter, comma, Jr. Yeah, so l- let me just read an order. We'll just recap uh, what we have here, and then we'll sign off. So Jesse, 14, Walt, 13, Skyler, 9, Tuco, and Saul Goodman, 4, Jane and Hank, both with 3, Crazy, 8, Gus Fring, Marie, Gail tied at 2, uh, Walt Common Jr., a.k.a. Flynn, a.k.a. Breakfast, zero, zilch, and never. Did we miss anything, Josh? Did we cover it all? Yeah, I think we covered it all. We'll be back, you know, next week with another, you know, podcast, which is 
you know, like a, a cast about a, a pods and podcast, <laughs> similar to the box that is just also a box. Right. You know, the, 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 like you put stuff in, like a pod, a, ca- <laughs> a cast, a cast of pods that you, you know, like yeah. you, you listen to. Uh, Yes, so we'll be back next week with another episode of Breaking Pod Season 3, Episode 10 is coming up. The name the name escapes me at the moment. Oh, the uh, Fly. The Fly, of course. This is one of the most famous episodes. Uh, and it's a great one. Uh, some might have some might call it boring, but those people just don't know what they're talking about. So uh, we'll get to (laughs) we'll get to all that coming up next time, season three, episode ten. Fly until then, reach out breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. We always love hearing from listeners. Uh, and would especially love if you let us know what your favorite part of fly is so that we could talk about it in the upcoming episode. So send us a note, breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. Until then, I'm Zach. And I'm Josh. Have a great week.